Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. One of the big takeaways from the 2020 election was the shift among Latino voters toward President Trump. Trump increased his share of the Latino vote by around eight percentage points between 2016 and 2020. It was the biggest swing of any racial or ethnic group and with the fastest growing group in the electorate. That kind of change will have big implications for the two parties if it becomes a longer term trend. Last April, we spoke with the team at Equis Research, a political data firm focusing on Latino voters founded by two former Obama staffers about what exactly happened what parts of the country saw the biggest swings, and among which segments of the Latino electorate. When it came to the question of why it happened, though, the answer was in large part, we need more data. Well, now we have more data, and the folks at Equis are back with us today to share it. Here with me are Equis co-founders Stephanie Valencia and Carlos Odio. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us back. Thanks so much for having us. So you published a lot of data, and we're going to dig into all of it, but let's start with the big picture. You titled your most recent report, The American Dream Voter. How does that framing fit in with why we saw that 2020 swing? Yeah, thanks, Galen. It's a great starting point. I mean, if there is a feature of campaigning to Latino voters in the modern era, it's always the American dream. You can go, you can look, look at Reagan ads, you look at Bush 1 ads, Bush 2 ads, um, th- through the Obama ads, and there was always a debate about the American dream. And the question is, is tug a rope over which... Um, definition of the American dream will dominate. And it just so happened this last election where you had many Latino voters who had held back from Trump in 2016. They viewed it as socially unacceptable to vote for him. And the economy unlocked a door for them. But it wasn't just the economy. It's the way that the economy was being debated, especially in the midst of COVID, where it's, are you prioritizing people's ability to get back to work um, and earn their livelihood or not? It gets tied into conversations about socialism, where really in the right-wing narrative, the opposite of socialism is not capitalism, it's not democracy, it's social mobility through hard work. And so really Trump owns the American dream debate and a kind of voter who may be somewhat conservative, but it held back from conservatives in the past, found in the way that Trump and his allies were framing the economy and owning the economy a, a permission structure to vote for Trump in his reelect. The thing I just add is, you know, the majority of Latinos in this country are working class voters. In addition to that, Latinos are one of the fastest growing uh, segments of the population that are opening small businesses and are small business entrepreneurs. So in a lot of ways, the Latino community acutely felt the effects of the pandemic and the economic shutdown in ways that other parts of perhaps the American population did not. And so there was even more of a a kind of gust of wind to help create that permission structure, as Carlos pointed out, around the economy because they were feeling it so acutely. So again, there's this interesting kind of moment and opportunity of what we've learned about 2020 and the moment in time that we're in now and what the future holds around kind of the economic reopening and recovery um, that we have to kind of figure out where where are Latinos going to go moving forward? Are they going to continue to shift um, toward Republicans, or do Democrats have a case to make to them too as the economy reopens and as COVID hopefully starts to wane? There's some very specific data to this point about COVID and the economy. And you wrote, quote, Trump's policies on COVID and the economy were in isolation very popular, even among liberal Hispanics. Absent any context, the numbers might even suggest that the incumbent should have done better than he did. 
So what specifically about Trump's policies were popular? Yeah, as it says there, you take the components, right? You take uh, reopening the economy, you take the stimulus, you take vaccine de- rapid vaccine development. You actually take uh, prioritizing American jobs and standing up to China. China is a big kind of through line in this American worker um, outsourcing debate. Uh, the tax cut, uh, tax cut, tax reform, all incredibly popular on their own. And those parts got prioritized within the campaign. The least popular planks of his platform, family separation, of course, being the least popular, were less emphasized as the campaign went on. And as you point out, if it had been anybody else, Trump himself remained unpopular. Trump was not particularly well liked. And that persisted till the end, even among many voters who voted for him, who shifted toward him. They still don't like the guy, um, but they did like some of what he represented. And they feared some of what might happen specifically a lockdown or return to uh, more to stricter COVID restrictions if Biden were to win. You did a bunch of polling to kind of fill out the picture of why the shift happened. And reopening the economy had 66% support amongst Latinos who voted in 2020. I'm curious, you know, the dynamic between the two parties hasn't changed all that much with Democrats, by and large, still supporting more COVID restrictions and Republicans, by and large, supporting fewer. Does that mean that this is also going to be an asset going into the midterms for Republicans? Well, it depends, right? First of all, when you look at the popular Trump platforms, um, many of them could be said are things that Joe Biden is also trying to do, right? Um, they, they are not specific to Trump, but that's part of why they had appeal. It was purely economic populism of, of which Biden, to some extent, is trying to hold himself. It's also worth saying, it's an important reminder we usually like to start with, um, Latinos still overwhelmingly supported Joe Biden. So when we're talking about these voters, especially this American dream voter, we're talking about a difference between three in 10 Latinos who voted for Trump the first time around and then four in 10 the next time around, right? So you're not, you're talking about a change on the margins. Majority of Latinos are still where they were. That said, the 2020 moment has not ended. We're still seeing so many of the forces that shifted some of these Latinos toward Donald Trump have not subsided. If actually, it's actually, some of those trends have been aggravated. COVID's not over as much as we very much all want it to be over. Prices have added another economic dimension. We are still debating um, on a spectrum of uh, reopening to uh, a more cautionary approach to COVID. So all these debates are still happening. So we really haven't gotten out of that framework and into a new world um, as much as Biden and Democrats would like to be there right now. And I think that the case that the Biden administration has to make to Latino voters in a lot of ways is very much there. I think that, you know, Biden trying to reopen the economy, Latino unemployment being some of the lowest in history. You know, there are a set of things related to the economy that are certainly kind of the raw materials to go and make a case to Latino voters that they're on their side. But uh, in addition to the postmortem, some of our other most recent research on working class Latino voters just shows this kind of, especially among, you know, working class voters of color, shows this kind of continued losing a footing among Democrats with Latino voters and other voters of color on the economy, who's fighting for them, who is uh, fighting for their families. And I think that's something that we really have to pay attention to in this moment uh, and beyond and where I think Democrats need to rethink what is their case to uh, the Latino voter on the economy? How do they regain their trust and their credibility? Looking at very current polling, Way to Win polled 1,000 Latino voters in Texas, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Arizona last month in both English and Spanish. And essentially, it showed that the economy is still the most important issue for Latino voters, and that half of Latino voters in those states think that the country is on the wrong track. So 
Is it the case at this point that Latino voters trust the Republican Party more on the issue of the economy? And is there more to it than COVID? Is this something that could potentially last? Great question. Um, Let me put it this way. If the midterms were a question of who do you trust more on the economy, it would undoubtedly be a better midterm among Latinos for Republicans. That is the best debate they want to have right now because they are more trusted on that question than they are on others. If you ask if the debate's actually who cares more about you and people like you, Democrats still have a huge advantage. If it's who's better for American workers, that's actually contested territory. I think when we ask why are Biden's approval numbers dropping more among Latino voters? So I think there's some evidence that that's the case. You know, we often say about the Trump shift, you can't just ask what moved voters to him in 2020. You have to ask what held them back in 2016. Similarly, today you have to ask not why are some voters um, souring on Joe Biden or why are approvals lower, um, but why were they with him to begin with? And they were with him to begin with um, because they, by default, believe that Democrats care more about them. Um, They believe that Joe Biden was going to bring an end to COVID, that he was going to bring economic benefit. And what you hear in focus groups is just malaise. This is true of the entire electorate. Entire electorate. People sound like they're stuck in jello. But among these Latino voters who had defaulted to Democrats, there is just a little bit of discontentment. I I say that to say this is a moment in time, right? All of that can change. COVID's going to end one of these days, knock on wood. Um, (laughs) Prices will hopefully stabilize. Um, Democrats can get back to passing more things. Um, All of that can change. But that is the moment we find ourselves in time with, which is really an extended 2020. So a related question here that is related to the economy but has gotten a lot of play on its own is the question of socialism. And I think a lot of commentary around socialism and Latino voters has historically centered on Cuban and Venezuelan Americans because of the experiences of Cuba and Venezuela. But your data shows that four in 10 2020 Latino voters expressed worries about socialism. So this goes pretty far beyond just Cuban and Venezuelan Americans. What is going on there? Great question. And it is true, it is more impactful in South Florida. So South Florida, uh, among those who are the closest to an experience that is actually socialism, um, as opposed to what you might call the Fox News varietal of socialism, um, which is a kind of a domestic political attack um, deployed largely through Fox News and the right wing ecosystem that then makes its way into things like WhatsApp. And again, mentioning what what do they mean by socialism is important. Um, They mean the opposite of the American dream. They mean the opposite of social mobility through hard work. They mean Democrats don't value hard work. And if there is one thing we hear in focus groups, if you like word to word cloud, every focus group we've ever done, work is number one. Um, There is like a fully ingrained principle, especially among Latinos closer to the immigrant experience around work and hard work. What socialism does and the attack does is create space for defection among Latinos who saw Democrats as the better party for them and to say, well, even though you voted for Democrats in the past, even though you voted for Obama, maybe this Democratic Party is not the one it was before. Maybe they're moving left, which creates room for you to not be with them anymore, right? An excuse for you not to be with them anymore. And that's how we saw them deploy the attack. I should say there are a lot of Democrats, uh, a lot of Latinos who still are worried about socialism, but still don't vote for Republicans. They're still held back. So the concern does kind of outweigh the actual vote. Um, At a certain point, we were unclear whether it was going to make a big impact. Um, But ultimately, when we ran analysis after the election going back, you could see how it was not as meaningful as just the economy overall, 
but how among certain circles, this socialism attack really was penetrating and moving people. Well, let me talk a little bit about like this, what put socialism on steroids in a lot of ways, which we talk about in the postmortem, which is the uncontested communication. And I think South Florida and the Miami kind of media market is a prime example of how this has happened. And, you know, after the 20, after 2016 election, Republicans and conservatives didn't stop talking about Democrats being socialists. <laughs> you know, they were on radio. There's the, as Carlos talks about, the Fox News varietal of socialism. But if you turn on Spanish language radio in South Florida, you're hearing a lot of these messages being reinforced about socialism and Democrats. So then they had, you know, multiple years to attach the socialism brand to Democrats until Joe Biden became the nominee and then like went full force to like attach that label to him. And we saw it kind of slowly form and take shape in focus groups over the course of the cycle that it was very largely undefined and then very quickly in places like South Florida became very quickly defined with the label of socialism. But you have a media ecosystem that conservatives have invested in for a very long time in places like South Florida and could potentially be replicated other places that is amplified by radio, television, influencers on YouTube, while Democrats are still kind of buying radio ads and talking about talking to Latinos only in the GOTV cycle. And the one kind of big example we always use is, you know, conservative aligned forces bought one of the more neutral, last neutral radio stations in South Florida for $350,000 last April. Democrats spent $15 million in the last 30 days of the election on paid media. And so you see the asymmetry and how uh, in in Miami and in the South Florida market alone. So you see the asymmetry and communication and the year round communication that is solidifying these narratives around socialism using WhatsApp, YouTube um, and other platforms, Facebook to um, circulate and reinforce them in different uh, kind of mediums, in addition to the more traditional uh, places of like radio and television. Um, So that's really what Democrats are up against. And it's not just coming with the counter narrative like, hey, we're not socialists, but actually like coming up with a kind of counter narrative that really meets these voters where they are, which is around the American dream and work and all of that. Yeah. On one hand, the media ecosystem in Miami, and it's particularly the Spanish language media ecosystem around Miami, might be particular to Latino voters. But on the other hand, when you do these focus groups on this polling, the critiques that you hear are pretty common amongst other parts of the electorate, too. So here's a quote from your report. There isn't one overriding concern about socialism, but a package of complaints usually rises to the top around government control over people's lives, raising taxes, and money going to undeserving recipients. If a through line exists, it is a worry over people becoming lazy and dependent on government by those who highly value hard work. That sounds really familiar in American politics. So is this just like a swing voter who, you know, thinks that hard work is important and resources should go to the deserving. I mean, that's just a conservative voter or a swing voter or whatever. And in my mind, how unique are Latino voters in the swing voter ecosystem? Well, right. Well, what's unique about them is that even though they held these values, they were still voting for Democrats. And and so that's what you have to you have to go back and say, well, why is it that someone who felt this way and has felt this way voted for Obama and then voted for Hillary Clinton? And that's where you have to get, that is where the racial and ethnic dimension really does come in. That you have Latinos holding back, Hispanics holding back, because they view the Republican Party as hostile to them in some way. And they view it as, in some way, socially unacceptable to vote for a Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, or in particular, a Trump in 2016. 
then the issue landscape changes and people who do feel these values find a way to kind of uh, gravitate closer to the position of, you know, how non-college white men who hold those positions might vote. Um, Latinos still holding back, still different from their counterparts, but there is something about identity and about the communities in which they live that is causing reluctance or that has in the past caused reluctance. So what does that mean to politicians campaigning from either party to Latino voters that it's a kind of ethnic identity that keeps people voting for the Democratic Party, whereas on the actual issues, you know, the Latino electorate may just be split like the white electorate. What do politicians do with that information? Well, you, you said it in some way, which is these are, and Steph, you should talk about the immigration piece, um, but these are swing voters and you have to treat swing voters as swing voters. I realize this like is not rocket science, but the extent to which a Latino who is really persuadable ends up getting treated like a pure mobilization target, meaning they're not getting any real engagement until the end of the election where they're just being reminded to vote and pressured to vote, as opposed to the suburban, you know, the, like the, uh, you know, the classic archetypal suburban soccer mom who is getting all kinds of communication, persuasive messaging um, throughout that election cycle, right? And a big difference. That's just a starting point. But that it's not enough to talk about the economy, right? It's not enough to try to erase ethnicity and race altogether. And that's where you start thinking about where does Hispanic identity come into play? And one of those ways is immigration. It's not the only way. Immigration is not the only issue care, Latinos care about. They want to hear about others. But is it a way in which um, we have in the past been able to differentiate between the parties? It's certainly a defining issue between Democrats and Republicans with a lot of Latino voters. And I think as, as kind of Carlos pointed out, Latino voters aren't looking for a separate policy agenda from, you know, either party. Like they care about the same bread and butter issues, but there are a few issues that I think they, you know, want to hear politicians speaking to them directly uh, in a lot of ways as a community, knowing, you know, that in certain ways, Latinos still are facing discrimination. Latinos are still facing different odds in this country than other parts of the electorate. And so speaking to those needs and pains is like really important in acknowledging them. But on the issue of immigration really is like a differentiator, which is to say, I always like to call immigration a gateway issue for Latino voters, which is it's never their top one, two or three issue. For very few, it's their number one, two or three issue, because that's always going to be the economy, jobs, healthcare, education. Um, but it's a way that they filter whether or not a politician sees us as a threat or whether or not they see us as an added value to this country. And so for a lot of ways, kind of circling back to where we started at the beginning of the podcast is why there was so much of a permission structure that was created in 2020. We weren't talking about immigration in the same way we were in 2016 or in the 2018 midterms at the height of the family separation crisis. And so again, there is, I will also say, an impatience around wanting to see action from either party on immigration as just common sense solutions. And we can talk about some of those as well. But I think part of that is, is that Latinos are waiting for, for either party to kind of deliver something serious on immigration that moves the ball forward in a common sense way. But again, can be that issue that uh, I think can differentiate Democrats as delivering for Latino voters uh, from Republicans who, you know, um, say they've been trying for a really long time, but haven't. And notably, we were just getting back state polling um, and some of Biden's lowest approvals among Latinos by issue area is in immigration. And it's because it is driven by both the 
border crowd and the pathway to citizenship crowd, meaning everybody uh, is disapproving of Biden on immigration right now. And that's a challenge when you're just not when you're just hoping the issue goes away. Yeah, I mean, looking at your 2020 post-mortem polling, it shows 55% of Latino voters support more border spending, 51% support limiting refugees and asylum seekers, and 49% support limiting legal immigration. So that to me doesn't seem like an electorate that's super jazzed about what Democrats are offering on immigration. To some extent, it sounds like the immigration issue becomes more of an identity politics point, which is you either, you know, like my people and want my people in the country, or you don't, as opposed to the actual policy specifics. Is that the case? Because, I mean, just looking at the polling, it seems like Republicans might have a case to make to Latino voters, even on immigration. Great point. I think the way that people talk about immigration misses a couple of things. One is it in itself is not a monolithic issue, right? That people do not, people ha- can have somewhat of a nuanced position in this regard. Um, and the two, it's never just about the policy. It's about how it's that policy is being talked about. And so what we heard is the extent to which the border has become more of a salient issue and border security and that the news for a long stretch was um, uh, was taken over by stories about the border. It became more of a public safety concern. And so for those who are sensitive on public safety, they see the stories on the border and they would like to see border security. What they don't want to see is cruelty. And the mistake is to think that 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 means that they don't want to take care of those who are here. It's actually quite the opposite. What we hear in focus groups is people saying, well, I agree we got to do something about the border, but we've got to take care of the people who are already here. And we've got to have a pathway um, for the undocumented. The frustration is a sense that both parties disappoint on the issue, that Trump <laughs> Trump was Trump on the issue of immigration, um, and that Democrats promised that they're going to do things but never really were able to do so anyway. And so it almost sidelines the issue of immigration altogether, whereas if you go back into 2006, 2007, these really big immigration debates basically created an image of the Republican Party that Democrats were able to coast on for like a good decade of Republicans as just straight up racist who did not want Latinos and did not like Latinos. Some of that power has kind of faded because Democrats were not able to deliver on those issues or show that they were substantively different. Two things I just add to that is that I think Latino voters, largely what we've seen in our polling, want the common sense solution, as Carlos has kind of pointed out. They don't want cruelty. They don't want the wall, but they don't mind border spending. They want something to be figured out for the people who are here. So common sense is, I think, the same place where a lot of the broader electorate is and wants to see something move forward to address kind of the challenge of where we are. Last thing I'll just say is immigration is a differentiator. You know, um, Catherine Cortez Masto up for re-election this year. Um, look back to 2010 when the DREAM Act was in the United States Senate and Harry Reid, you know, brought it to the floor for, you know, a vote and was pushing for, you know, Congress to pass it. Unfortunately, it never happened, but was a really important differentiating issue in his Senate race in Nevada in 2010 to show kind of the different between Democrats fighting for the issue of immigration and fighting for dreamers and Republicans who were standing in the way. And so again, as as how we think about the issue of immigration kind of beyond um, kind of the policy solutions, um, how again, it can be a differentiator with this community, especially in places like Nevada, where the community uh, is really paying attention to it, um, can be can be really important. 
So the two places that are kind of famous or have been well noted for the bottom falling out for Democrats and Republicans doing really well are South Florida, which we mentioned, and the other area is the Rio Grande Valley along the Texas border with Mexico. And there we saw some really big swings. I think the average of Texas-Mexico border counties, Clinton won by 33 points, Biden won by 17 points. But then if you look at specific counties like Star, Hidalgo, and Zapata counties, the swing was in the range of like 20 to 50 points from one election to the next. What is going on there? Is that a kind of anti-immigration and public safety sentiment that aligns with Trump? What we saw in our polling in Texas was something very unique happening along the border when we controlled for a bunch of other factors. Like you take out people's demographics, you take out their partnership, you take out where they live, what is moving people above and beyond? That's where we saw immigration. And specifically, that's where we saw border, where we saw border security um, seem to be highly, highly salient. And it makes sense, right? Trump was not actually campaigning in the border, but you wouldn't know the difference substantively given, uh, or at least symbolically, because he was down there all the time. His surrogates were down there all the time. His allies were on the border all the time. It was in the media constantly, the border, the border, the border. And in a place like Brownsville, it isn't a matter of humanity and immigration. It's actually a question of simple public safety, of homelessness in, uh, in the parks. Now, what makes that stick is that it's one-sided uncontested communication, that essentially this issue becomes highly salient and Republicans just straight up own it. And national Democrats are not showing up on it at all. And that's what allows a larger shift. That is in general a through line of what we found in our postmortem. Wherever there was asymmetrical advantage on communication, whether on issues, whether showing up in a particular geography, um, is where you saw a bigger shift for Trump. Yeah, it was uncontested communication in South Texas in a very different way than it was in South Florida, but it was still uncontested. As Carlos kind of mentioned, Trump and his allies, members of Congress, other local officials were there kind of beating the drum all the time. And so it was creating kind of a surround sound ecosystem about that issue in South Texas that I think helped to move people so dramatically uh, over such a short period of time. One of the question marks after the 2020 election for Democrats was whether or not the defund the police movement that was visible amongst the left within the party and Black Lives Matter activists and things like that, whether that was a losing issue for them. Does that show up in your polling at all? You know, we see race all over all of our research. You can see race show up in multiple ways. We heard how the conventional wisdom was that it was defund the police. And so we went like on a quest to find to what extent was defund the police a factor. And we just don't see it, right? This is not to say that defund the police is a popular policy. I just think there's been an assumption that Latino voters had heard about it when they really had it. You can go back to contemporaneous polling and see um, the, the term, the concept was not highly salient in that moment among your average voter. People, it was not penetrating. So we do see the extent to which, you know, crime and safety makes appearances here and there. Um, but you know what? We we see it moving in two different directions. We see how uh, the, the debates after the murder of George Floyd actually mobilized some Hispanic voters to the benefit of Joe Biden, that actually it helped bolster Joe Biden's margins. It could have been worse in certain places if not for the mobilizing effect it had. But when we went and we looked at data um, from Nationscape, 
when we looked, uh, which does week to week polling throughout the election, and you look at before the murder of George Floyd and after the murder of George Floyd, you do not see a break in the trend line. You do not see in the period during which these debates were happening, you don't see a change from the trajectory of the election. And we've looked in other ways and we just don't see the case for it. So it is to say, as many things, these are complex questions. Um, There are other ways in which race factors into Latino vote choice. But simplifying it to defund the police means that people are focusing on the wrong target, the wrong diagnosis, and thus might lead them to the wrong prescriptions. So that's to say the economy, COVID, socialism, to some extent, the border were more salient issues than defund the police, at least for Latino voters in the 2020 election. Yeah, you have a bunch of usual suspects standing around with like smoking guns and like we're pointing, (laughs) we're pointing to this one like crackpot theory. Um, So it's to say, yes, I would say there's just way more obvious factors. And I think it's just a mistake to ignore the obvious factors um, in order to fit this other narrative. Again, that's not anybody saying that tomorrow Democrats should start campaigning on defund the police, but nobody is saying that. Um, There are no leading Democrats in 2020 cycle or today who are advocating for defund the police. And so we really have to kind of interrogate why this is a uh, narrative and a discourse that just won't go away, even while we got to get a little bit deeper on questions of race and what they really mean here. I agree, obviously, with everything that Carlos said, and I I think that... um whether it's that or critical race theory or any of these other issues that have popped or will pop in these next two years, like we have to really kind of be very serious about asking like how much are ordinary Latino voters actually consuming and digesting and viewing the world with these issues rather than how Twitter is talking about them. Um, So that's just the only piece that I would add is like there will be another defund the police in the next eight months, 10 months. A lot of that's critical race theory now. Um, How much of that are ordinary voters actually digesting? Well, one question this leads to is that a theme of some of this research is that Latino voters aren't all that different from, you know, the American electorate, voters writ large, when they have this kind of common identity argument about the Democratic Party cares more about Hispanic voters and the Republican Party cares less, then it becomes maybe a simpler equation. But when it's about actual kind of policy and identity politics is less salient, then it's more of a free-for-all. So I'm wondering, like, to the extent that white voters might be swayed by racial resentment in some issues, are Latino voters swayed that way as well? Yes. I mean, that's why you see, but that's why you see like in the disinformation kind of ecosystem that we have been monitoring for the last two years, while at the height of the George Floyd uprisings, there were memes and photos of African-American protesters circulating in Hispanic kind of dominated Facebook rooms and Facebook pages because it was about trying to seed and tap into racism and colorism uh, in the community that does exist. And so there will always be attempts to try to divide because there is and will always will be kind of this lens of race that is a longer term kind of challenge that needs to be dealt with in the community. And so folks are trying to kind of um, take advantage of that in order to create maybe, you know, larger divisions between these two communities. You know, somebody on Twitter tried to argue that, uh, because all bad things come from Twitter, that that a measure of racial resentment that actually registers among Latino and Black voters can't be a measure of racial resentment. And listen, uh, Black and Latino and AAPI folks are allowed to be racist too, meaning we're talking about human beings and anything that dehumanizes 
and tries to reduce any voter to like one dimension of their identity that flattens people out is just not good for our democracy. So I get frustrated, as you might, as you can hear um, in that regard. Um, Steph said it very well. I think it's also worth identifying that there are strategies of racial division, um, that some of what um, uh, especially the right wing has tried to do for a while is try to create a wedge between Latino and non-Latino black voters, trying to turn black voters against Latino voters on uh, on nativism, on anti-immigrant sentiment, on the immigrants are coming to take your uh, jobs and turning Latinos um, against uh, black voters around a variety of anti-black stereotypes and tropes. I mean, it also sounds a little bit like the message to Democrats is use identity politics to win Latino voters. Is that the message of this data as well? And are there risks in that too? I think the message is treat voters as whole human beings, right? And talk to them about the things that they care about um, and their life experience. The thing is, it's also with an acknowledgement of the history of race and ethnicity in this country, the extent to which many Latinos do not fully participate in the process because they are still made to feel like guests in this country. So that when you say a colorblind economic policy, there are a lot of Latino voters who see that and don't know that it actually includes them. And so you need an explicit invitation to the table for voters who have felt marginalized to participate and come along. And so again, Galen, that doesn't mean we should just do identity politics, but identity politics is part of American politics. It's just that we think of identities not just in terms of race and ethnicity. There are lots of different kind of identitarian right. politics that we use um, in this country. And what we're saying is don't just talk to one, talk to multiple. And to not speak to that is actually just missing a huge boat and a huge opportunity to connect with these voters in a very real and more authentic way. So again, it's not an entirely new policy agenda from whole cloth, but rather it is how do you find opportunities to communicate that in a way that speaks to somebody's individual experience? Yeah. And of course, I mean, you saw the campaign events from the Trump campaign had signs everywhere that said Latinos for Trump. It was very much rallying around a specific identity. You know, that's part of American politics. We've talked about it plenty on this podcast. And it is an important thing to know that, like, you know, for a long time, Democrats have really thought that Latino voters would just be Democratic robots. And the truth is what the last two cycles have really taught us is that's not the case. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, who is owning the debate on these really important issues that they care about is, and the rest of the electorate cares about, like the economy and, you know, who's fighting for them and for their families. Um, you know, Democrats also have to ask themselves where and how and when are they communicating with Latino voters? Like, GOTV ads, as the South Florida example that I used earlier, like, illustrate, like, aren't going to cut it if you're actually trying to persuade this universe over a longer narrative and a longer, like, uh, longer term kind of narrative about who Democrats are and why Demo and why Latinos should be uh, voting for them. And as we've talked about kind of ad nauseum, you know, half of Latino eligible voters are still sitting on the sidelines. So who is talking to them? That is a universe that is completely untapped. And so who is talking to that universe of voters? Um, because there's, uh, as we think about 2024 and even 2022 rebuilding the Biden coalition from 2020 is going to be next to impossible. So how, where do you go find those new voters? There are 50% of Latino eligible voters who are sitting on the sidelines waiting to be asked. And in fairness, it's partly our job to figure some of that out. Exactly. Meaning me and Stephanie and our organization. Absolutely. So 
you wrap up this report with some remaining questions. You know, one of them is, as you mentioned, why 50% of eligible Latino voters are sitting out these elections. You know, you look at voting rates amongst white, black, and Asian voters, they're significantly higher. So that's one of the questions you have. Another question you end on is, all of these trends that we've been talking about here were not as true, not nearly as true in Arizona, where Democrats did quite well amongst Latino voters and perhaps won the state and uh, Senate seat as a result. How far along have you come in answering any of those questions? I know that's a lot to end on, but... Uh, it's only been a month since we released this first report. <laughs> we had to give no, Christmas. Uh, I know, I know, I know. It's unfair. <laughs> There's still very interesting questions, so I'm curious if you have theories. Arizona is a really interesting one there because Arizona did defy so many of the other trends. And it's still an unproven one, I will say. But the simplest explanation would be one that we do report there, which is that if you look at election eve polling, Latinos in Arizona report highest levels of contact um, of any state polled. So Latinos in Arizona saying, yeah, I heard from a campaign at much higher rates than Latinos in um, any other state you want to name. And that, I think, gets to a, a big part of the factor, which is Arizona was a um, highly contested state. There was no doubt the extent to which um, Latinos were important to Democrats, to Joe Biden, to Mark Kelly um, in that election. And that's important because we don't factor in the extent to which Donald Trump in 2020, in a way that he did in 2016, really actively and aggressively campaigned for the Latino vote. And when Republicans do that, Rick Scott's a good example. He has done that in Florida, and he is now trying to export that as head of the Senate Republicans to other states. When they campaign for the Latino vote, they do better. Youngkin in Virginia is another example of that. He campaigned aggressively for the Latino vote, and it does produce margins. The lesson is when you let the other side have a free runway when you allow uncontested communication, you are going to see a shift toward the other side. That was true of Republicans for a long time. Now, if Democrats aren't careful, it could happen to them as well. So that's part of the reason that Democrats might have performed better in Arizona than some of these other places. The voter turnout question you've described a little bit in terms of Latino voters may still feel like guests in this country and you know want to be spoken to specifically. Are there other reasons that we don't see higher turnout amongst the Latino electorate and reasons you might think that could change going forward? Yeah, I mean, we th this is part of, this is a major focus of our work this year. Um, I think people generally just look at the mobilization piece. And look, if you run good GOTV program, you're going to increase turnout, you know, like one to three points. But what we're talking about is a difference of 12 to 13 points between Latinos and API or black voters, 24 points between Latino and white voters nationally um, in turnout rates. And so there are other bigger factors that are holding folks back. You talked about the guest complex. There's a, to what extent Latinos feel kind of influential um, within the process. All of it is essentially people feeling on the sidelines, feeling like politics isn't for them, feeling like politics doesn't want them. It all boils down to that, even though part of what we are doing this year is getting a little more specific than that piece. That's what comes down to. You can control for socioeconomic factors. Um, it's do people have exposure to the political system? Do they have positive exposure to the political system? Do they feel like they are welcome and included within that political system? 
And I think beyond those research questions to try to kind of unpack that piece around why are people not participating or what will invoke greater turnout or how do how do different parties think about persuasion is really the mechanisms and tactics by which to do that. Um, and again, you know, talking about how some people are still just really focused on digital ads and TV and radio buys when conservatives and Republicans have been thinking about building entire media ecosystems, um, when they are communicating with Latino voters through things like the Libra initiative that are is basically like a, a community service and community aid, uh, you know, organization in lots of places in the Southwest that, you know, talks to them 90% of the time about nothing related to politics, but maybe about a small business loan or other things like that, and are servicing the everyday Latino and the everyday life and challenge that they're experiencing and facing. And so there's a whole new kind of paradigm, I think, as it relates to how quickly the electorate is growing and how different parts of progressive and conservatives want to be communicating and reaching and deepening their relationship with Latino voters that will require a different kind of level of curiosity and different set of tactics in the new world that we live in today. Because just cutting that one American dream ad in Spanish um, with a, you know, candidate who like doesn't have a great accent, like isn't going to cut it anymore. That's not enough to kind of show that your candidate cares about the Latino community. And so beyond policy, I think being able to communicate that in kind of a surround sound year round way is how candidates and the different kind of progressive and conservative ecosystems need to be thinking about it. All right. Well, that's a good note to end things on. And we will see where things go from here. Of course, Americans will be voting again this fall. We'll get a whole new set of data. We'd love to talk more about this with you in the future. But that's it for now. So thank you so much, Carlos and Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Carlos Odio and Stephanie Valencia are the co-founders of the Equis Research Firm. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. And Nash Consing is on video editing. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.